to another episode. I got to get an intro to this show, um, like a proper intro. I kind of feel like like rapping over top of the um, over top of the intro beat that I have now. Um, that beat is not produced by any one of my friends. That's a generic um, Adobe beat. So shout out to my producer Adobe um, for for hooking me up with that uh, proper beat. Right. Um, again, welcome to another episode of the Record Spinner Podcast. I'm your host Noel, checking in with another another special um, edition of season zero. Um, that bridge, right? Yeah, I'm not going to say the whole bridge thing again, but you know what I'm about to say. The the episode leading into season two. This is kind of a different episode. Um, I come to you tonight, even though I joke, um, I come to you tonight with a heavy heart and, and a heavy mind because um, we have some news in the, in the vinyl and jazz and black jazz vinyl. I love the way that sounds. We have some news in that community, and unfortunately, like like what is so often in the black community, we joke about it all the time, um, but this news edition comes due to a, a death in the community, um, one that touches close to home for all of those fans of Strata East and all of the independent black jazz labels. Um, I'll get into talking about those a little bit more in a sec, but... On December 17th, um, it's yesterday um, as of this recording, but um, I don't know when you'll, when you'll hear it, but we lost another great. Um, jazz greats have, all of the major jazz greats have been fallen before our eyes um, for the past, I feel like, five or six years. And it's it's been really tough one after the other, but... But this one is extremely, extremely tough. Um, again, because it's it involves my favorite independent black jazz label, a record label that I've built my entire um, vinyl identity around. In in an essence, um, I have devoted a lot of time to collecting and. And acquiring um, as much of of the knowledge and material that I can about this record label, and it's it's a sad day, just it's a sad day. Um, Stanley Cowell, rest in power. Um, pianist, co-founder of again the Black Jazz record label, Strata East. Um, this record label I've talked about um, a bunch since starting this podcast um we've talked about um bill lee we've talked about my my run-in with cliff lee who's done a few recordings on strata east um i've talked about um the importance of of black jazz music and black jazz independence um away from the labels like um blue note and columbia and um, universal and so on and so forth. Tonight, I'm going to just talk briefly about the importance of this man who we lost today, and and it's it's with a little bit of sadness that I, I have yet to mention his name on this pa- podcast. Um, 
against Stan- Stanley Cow is is uh, a relic in in the in the black community that um, that we're going to just talk about a little bit briefly here, and um, and yeah, and and peace to his family, peace to his fans like myself, um, peace to those who knew and loved the brother as much as uh, as much as we do here at the Record Spinner Podcast. So, without any further ado. We're going to hop right into it. No ads, no sponsorships on this episode. Straightforward, straight no chaser, like Thelonious Monk. So like I said, um, on December on December 17th, um, Stanley Cow was pronounced um, deceased and he transitioned from the world of living legend to the world of ancestor. Um, one of the records I want to talk about briefly is um, his record Musa um, Ancestral Streams and that was recorded on Strata East um, back in 1974 this record I have is a reissue a reissued record from Strata East and it's by Everland or Ever yeah Everland Jazz and yeah Everland Jazz uh, did a great job with this re- reissue um, it plays, it, I guess it was recorded, of course, from the original tapes. I promise you I will be doing an episode where we talk about all of the pressings and and reissues and the technical stuff with vinyl. Um, I'm just trying to find a way to tie it into, of course, uh, a black jazz uh, vinyl and, and records. Um, like the show is, right? I don't want to have like a, an oddball show where I'm talking about, you know, all this technical stuff and don't really get into why it's important to talk about this from the black or afro um liberationist perspective so that should be like episode six or five or seven or one i don't know it'll, it'll be one of those episodes um yeah man St- uh, stanley cow and strata east let's start with musa now Musa Ancestral Streams was dedicated to his father, Stanley R. Cow, um, who he credited for a lot of um, his influence in music and in spirituality. It's funny that it's funny that he uh, that he says um, spirituality part because this record was heralded as being as allmusic.com um, praises um, or praised this record in its review. Musa Ancestral Streams remains a relative oddity in the pantheon of jazz's black conscious movement. That's the movement we're going to be talking about a bit. And I've, and I've touched on it again in, in certain uh, episodes in the past. A solo piano set of stunning reach and scope its adherence to intimacy contrasts sharply with the bold, multi-dimensional sensibilities that signify the vast majority of post-Coltrane excursions into spiritual expression. Yet the sheer soulfulness and abandon of Stan- Stanley Cow's performance nevertheless vaults the record into the same physical and metaphysical planes. Coltrane, I've, I've talked about this. John Coltrane is um, 
one that I don't like to talk on too much when it comes to to black spirituality and 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 black vinyl music uh, because he's kind of been co-opted just like a lot of our our spiritual giants and and musical giants um, co-opted by a lot of um, fans who I think don't quite get the the wholeness of the man that was known as John Coltrane that may be another episode altogether but I don't want to spend too much time on that um the record label known as Strata East is important for a number of reasons. Uh, most important, though, because it it came together in a time where black art found itself wanting to be free. And this is important um, because we find ourselves at the same crossroad again. Um, I think... This entire era, the the 1966, 67 to maybe 1979, maybe 1980, um, this time period is super important for black music. And one of the reasons why it's so notable is due to the fact that black musicians found strength and ownership um, for the first time, I think, in in mass, at least, Um and when I say ownership, I mean not only the simple ownership of your masters and buying your music back from the record labels who loaned um, against what you created. And I'll talk about that, of course, more in a little bit. A lot of people don't know how the music industry works, and and, it, and it's a dirty business. Uh, I, I equate it to modern-day um, sharecropping, essentially. It's sharecropping. Uh, sharecropping worked where post-slavery um, slaves who saw no other opportunity and did not flee to uh, the northern states um, or somewhere else um, saw kind of a, um, a perversion of labor and this is how this is what music is and so I'll explain uh, just a, a tad bit more. But back after slavery, post-slavery, um, a lot of blacks um, uh, became sharecroppers, and uh, they did so not on the ignorance of still being in bondage, essentially, uh, but they did so um, thinking that this was now a fair exchange of labor and goods um, and services for um, what they thought they would, of course, be paid for their uh, labor and services. Um, in a lot of cases, which is highlighted in um, Isabel Wilkerson's um, amazing book about uh, the Great Migration. Um, I can't think of the title for some reason right now, but it escapes me, so I'll, I'll gather it as I'm talking here shortly. But it was highlighted in that book, and it's an amazing read if you should if you want to read it. But a lot of times, what happened was these sharecroppers would do all of this work. They would do the same exact thing essentially that they did as as slaves: work in the fields, work in the kitchens, work in the homes of these slave masters, and under the pretense of being paid now 
having a paid, uh, having a waged labor um, job. And what would happen is those slave masters continued on with their very grimy and very um, evil, just let's put it as it, let's just lay it out simple, their, their evil ways of not paying and not compensating um, those, 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 that labor. That simple. Now equating that to black music. Now, a lot of people don't know, but it's starting to become kind of a, uh, a known thing. Thank you, Nipsey Hussle. Thank you, um, Dame Dash. Um, I'm going to run out of names in a little bit, but thank you to a number of other uh, artists who are bringing awareness to this very issue. In the music industry, what happens, and it's been happening for a long time, this is no shot at any jazz, any, any of the jazz labels that I, that I love and admire still, but let's just, let's just keep it a whole buck here, right? Let's just bring all of it out to the forefront. And I'm talking, to, talking about Blue Note, and I'm talking about Columbia, and I'm talking about Universal, all of these jazz labels um, that worked against the artists. Now, this is how it worked. And this is how it still works in a lot of ways. Now, you think, you, as, a, as an artist, you create this art. And this label exec comes to you and says, Hey, I think you'll be a great fit at X record label. You should bring this record and your entire creation, all of your creative ideas, and allow us um, to distribute these on a mass scale to audiences everywhere where you'll be heard by everyone now. Um, and all we're going to ask in return is for ownership of that piece. Ownership of whatever you create. Because it's being created under our house. Unfortunately, just like sharecropping, right? Um, it sounds like a good idea because we know that these people, these major labels, they have money, right? So what they'll do is they'll, they'll front the artists. How much do you need to record this record and more? Oh, you need $100,000, a million dollars. That's how high it gets now. $2 million. Okay, here you go. Now in fine print, what happens is that becomes a loan. Now, I've never signed a contract, so I can't tell you the ins and outs of how that works, right? Um, I can only tell you from the perspective of being uh, an extraordinary fan um, that... I like my art, even if it happens to be a little bit more expensive. I'm looking at you, Makami. I like my art controlled by the artist. In the 60s and 70s, there were black jazz labels that popped up all over the country. In Oakland with Gene Russell and black jazz. I talked about them briefly in another episode with Walter Bishop Jr.'s record. In Detroit, with Wendell Harrison and Phil Rainland and Tribe Records. In New York, with Strata East and Charles Tolliver and Stanley Cowell. They sought to, see, to get complete ownership of their art make all of the profit from their art 
and in the same sense uplift communities um, that they lived and resided and were from um, uplift these communities and help these communities see that the art the beauty in the art it doesn't have to be sold to the first bidder nor to the highest bidder now there's been a resurgence of the wanting to be the owner of your art and i am all for it i shouted out makami there's a few others that um that have gone the independent route or the self-sustaining route and it's a hard road it's not an easy road um, they will all tell you that it's one that is very thankless um, because we're such a consumer society um, because we and i include me in this i'm not speaking on no high horse here we value the quantity over the quality we value being told that this is what's dope as opposed to finding what we think is cool this is what we value i tried to break that chain with myself a long long time ago and i like to think that i've done a, a really good job with the saw on that right when i was first introduced to strata east and and these uh these amazing records that are so hard to find and super expensive um i was taken aback a little bit and i was a little bit angry actually when when i first discovered them because the, these records were unimaginable creme de la creme jazz music i'm talking about the stuff you hear and you this is what you think this is the epitome of cool and spiritual and free jazz whatever comes to your head when, when you hear those words this is what these record labels um, embody that unfortunately a lot of them never made a lot of money never became rich never saw the fruits of their labor in totality and that is unfortunate it's a failure of the black community and it's one that i hope goes away really soon i hope we start to value these brave men and women who go out and record and sign with no one they do it all themselves or they find a group of like-minded black individuals and form a collective and do it themselves. Because that's the only way we're going to move past this. Tonight's episode was supposed to be an interview that I did with a good friend, a musician friend of mine, uh, who's from uh, Chesapeake, Virginia. And we were supposed to be talking about Rage, rage Against the Machine um, and the importance of that group. Um, of the 90s of course that saw uh, a lot of the same heat and and rage <laughs> rather um, that we saw this past summer it's sad that we still deal with a lot of these issues and we haven't the mass of us haven't begun to understand that the root of the issue 
is the fact that we're seeking these people's acceptance, um, seeking these people's acknowledgement and their rewards um, for uh, short-term and instant gratification. Yes, yes, the quick money is easy and it's quick and it can get you out of the ghetto and it can get you out of the hole. And yes, if you do it right, you can still recoup. A lot of artists do that. Yes, that is true. This is all true. This is how sharecropping worked, though. There were some sharecroppers who were very, very nice and they had nice bosses and they were treated with respect and dignity. And eventually they got to own their little plot of land and they got to uh, own their little mule and own the food and own the, the all of the fruits of their labor. Eventually. <laughs> but they still were renting. Do you get what I'm saying? I'm going to digress on that. I may make people, I may, I may make you mad if you're, if you're of a particular race or background, but this is what it is. And there's no running from it anymore because at least the mass of us now want to know and want to finally try and solve this issue regardless of how I feel the right way is to solve it. At least now it's back on the forefront, right? Some of Stanley's greatest works I own. Of course, some of them reissued, which is all good. Um, my hope is to one day own the entire um, Strata East uh, catalog um, originals. And um, I will have to become a quite a rich man in order to do that. But um, I am hopeful. I am hopeful. Rest in power, Stanley Cow. We're going to list off some of my favorite records. After Musa, Ancestral Streams, 1974. Stanley Cow also has a bunch of other records that are among my favorites in the jazz um, genre. 1969, his debut release on Freedom record label. Blues for the Viet Cong. You know, that's the that's the funny thing about a lot of these amazing musicians, too. A lot of these men were war vets, Korean War, World War Two, some Vietnam. And it's crazy because when they came home to the world that they thought, you know, had embraced them had accepted them, they tried to defend. They were met with hate. And they responded with self-love. And then we, <laughs> the country responded saying that that was hate. <laughs> you see the problem with that? I also own his 1969 classic Brilliant Circles. This record features one of my favorite trumpet players, Mr. Woody Shaw. Also has Reggie Workman and the legendary... Bobby Hutcherson, who we lost a few years back as well. He did a record with um, he did a record with the piano choir, and that was a, a group that was formed within the Strata East record label. Um, a bunch of pianists, which is a pretty cool concept, honestly. Um, among those, uh, Nat Jones, Hugh Lawson. Danny Mixon, Sinanis Smith, 
who played the uh, African piano, which is a really interesting instrument, by the way. Yeah, just to go back, we lost Bobby in 19, not in 19, we lost Bobby in 2016 at the age of 75. Stanley was 79. We still have a lot of legends left, but they are old now. This is another reason I'm grateful to, to cats like Mad Lib and Pete Rock, because these are guys who, as historians and as producers, they do an amazing job of making sure that these people aren't forgotten. And a lot of them would be forgotten if it wasn't for cats like these. Um, yeah, I was introduced to Tribe through Mad Lib's music. Um, I found again. I found Stratus thanks to my spiritual advisor, but um, I, I, I found uh, Tribe through Madlib. Ladies and gentlemen, this era in music is important because this era in music laid the foundation of which we sit upon right now, as Black people, as Black artists, as Black musicians. The idea of owning your own art and valuing your own art and not allowing any white, not knowing talent ass labels to dictate what constituted what your art stood for or what your art was. These guys laid that foundation. All of the names I said today, check out all of their works. If you didn't catch a name, go back, rewind it, and just punch it into the computer and start the journey. Start looking at these artists for what they created because not only was the music phenomenal, but what they stood for is just as phenomenal. I think I covered what I wanted to cover um, tonight. Again, uh, it's a heavy heart tonight, and I just hope that as these relics transition and ascend toward the sun and into the ancestral plane, that we start to um, realize their gifts and their talents and their love for us as black people and what they went through to make sure that that love was understood. They didn't get money and run away from ghettos like a lot of the artists today, not throwing names out. They didn't get money and flash it in front of people's faces and make them feel belittled and below nothing which is now, of course, the temperature of our music, right? And, and we wonder why all the bullshit is happening. They cared. They loved. They created. And they didn't sell it. They didn't sell it. They didn't not believe in themselves and go to, and run to some label to give them millions of dollars. 
they waited on us. They waited on us to buy and to respect and to value and to love them back. And we didn't in a lot of ways. And we did in a lot of ways. Blessings to the ancestor's family, to those who loved him. That is my time. You can reach me if you want to respond. Um, got any comments, questions, concerns? Reach me at the Record Spinner Podcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, Rebirth of the Cool. And last but not least, the website. Check me out, check out the form. Watch the podcast there. And you can do that at therecordspinner.com. That's therecordspinner.com.